0: Continuing our series in Colossians, and um, so turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter three, or swipe on your Bibles, open your Bibles. Soon we'll have just like a hologram command, you know, prompt. You'll just say the verse and it'll just pop up in front of you. <laughs> You'll just wear like a little Fitbit or something. Colossians chapter three. And um we broke up the the passage the passages of of, uh, of 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 scripture. We started off talking um, the, the book of Colossians really is about Christ over all things and it's really and we talked about this a little bit last week, but it's really about the supremacy there's a there's a big word the supremacy of Christ over every area of our lives and so uh, Paul has kind of navigated through these these different categories of how we understand our life, our existence, the world, the universe, our solar system. I mean, all of these things, and and he keeps asserting Christ's lordship, the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. And our our passage today in Colossians three, uh, starting in verse twenty two to chapter four, verse one continues Christ's supremacy and lordship over, over the home. And um, so it's helpful for us, and we'll talk a little bit about the first century context, but we, we come to a passage of Scripture that, um, that is a little controversial. We're not going to avoid that controversy this morning. We're going to discuss it. We're going to talk about it and, um, because this is God's word. And so there's nothing in God's Word that we need to be embarrassed about, uh, but we do need to study, we do need to, to, to discuss and kind of unpack what's there because just a quick run-through can sometimes engender misunderstandings, especially now in the 21st century when a lot of things from the Bible just seem passe and kind of antiquated and, and to some people downright offensive. Colossians 3.22 Reads, uh, bondservants, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, now we come before you um, recognizing that without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we really can't understand your word, that by your spirit you save us, you convert us, you illuminate our minds and our hearts, and you convict us of our sin through your spirit. And so now we pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit and the unction and anointing of that spirit and presence to open our hearts, our minds, that we might understand the word of God and that our hearts would be convicted and that we would be convinced, O God, of its inspiration and power and truth. We pray now, O oh God, that you would transform us and send us from this place different than the way we came in. We thank you. In your son's name, we pray these things. Amen. I love the movie Gladiator. It's uh, it's in my top ten. My kids are always asking, Dad, uh, what's in your top five? And I'll go, uh, you know, this movie and that movie, and they go, okay, what's in your top ten? So I'll say, well, my top ten is, you know, and sometimes they're change, they change, but there's always kind of like that. there's the top five and the top ten. And um, true to form, you know, there's, uh, you know, war movies and action movies, and, and uh, sadly, The Notebook didn't make it in. Um, <clears throat> I don't know that they'd be, it'd be in my top 100 But one of my favorite movies is Gladiator. And um, in the movie, Maximus is a Roman general played by Russell Crowe. If you've seen the movie, uh, that's familiar to you. And uh, he's a successful Roman general. And he runs afoul of the new emperor, uh, Commodus, who has just assassinated the previous emperor, Marcus Aurelius... Who is not only Maximus's mentor but also Commodus's father? Um, when I was typing this in my notes, spellcheck kept trying to correct Commodus with commode. and so, <clears throat> and he's a bad guy. So it was appropriate, you know. He, he's a he's a filthy guy. <laughs> he's a bad guy. Uh, but so Maximus is sentenced to death for running afoul of Commodus, and and um, they, they take him out into the woods to kill him, and he escapes. And he you know, travels and is you know off in the desert, and he's you know he passes out out of exhaustion, and he's picked up by a band of traders, who ultimately um, sell him into slavery, and he's forced to become a gladiator. And the entire film explores the route that his slavery and ult- and development as a gladiator. That the entire film explores where that takes him. And it ultimately takes him back to Rome and the Colosseum, where he has a confrontation with uh, Commodus, who is now Caesar, the sovereign ruler of the empire. But throughout the entire movie, um, the director never lets you forget one thing. As good as Maximus is as a gladiator in the action fight scenes in the Colosseum, one thing you can't forget is that Maximus is a slave. A mighty gladiator, to be sure, but a slave nonetheless. The movie's tagline is the general who became a slave, the slave who became a gladiator, the gladiator who defied an emperor. It's all quite dramatic. In the ancient world, uh, slaves were a normal part of domestic society. In a household, there were women and children and servants. And Aristotle, writing in the 4th century BC, says that uh, slaves are considered animate property. So, you know, your chair, your couch, your refrigerator is an inanimate object. From Aristotle's point of view, a slave was an animate object. It was property, but it had a heartbeat, right? It moved. It was, it was alive, Um, and this is what Aristotle says. He goes on to say, and and I quote Aristotle to give you a view of one perspective from the ancient world about slavery. He says that a slave is unable to take part in rational discourse because they're without the faculty of deliberation. It's pretty hard. Now, you know, not all people had this point of view about slavery in Paul's day, but a slave, no matter how well he or she was treated, was still under the absolute authority of their master or their employer. Now, why do I talk about this? Because is this passage passage specifically about slavery? Well, a major critique against Christianity in the Bible from the skeptic is that the Bible mentions slavery without ever... Now, this is a critique, right? So skeptics, people who don't really believe the bible or people who are cold towards christianity this is one of their criticisms that the bible mentions slavery without ever really coming out and condemning it at least not in the sense that we would or we 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 sh- we think it should so what about it do these verses uphold the institution of slavery does the bible simply assume the status quo and avoid challenging it. You know, sometimes as modern people, it's impossible not to read modern sensibilities into ancient texts and contexts. When that happens um, and when that takes place, we call that anachronism. So, an anachronism, if you're not familiar, if something is anachronistic, uh, uh, it could, part of what it means is judging something that is old with a modern standard, right? So an example would be, well, the Bible is false because the creation account doesn't mention dinosaurs. Well, that would be an anachronism because the word dinosaur didn't exist until the mid-1800s, right? So that's inappropriate. It would be inappropriate to say something like that. Or uh, another example of an anachronism would be saying that... uh, Europeans in the Middle Ages were anti-environment because they cut down all the forests of Europe. Well, of course, you know, without an alternative fuel source, it was either cut down trees for shelter and wood uh, for fire or freeze to death. So that would be another example of an anachronism, using modern sensibilities to judge an ancient context or an ancient text. And so we want to avoid anachronisms here. And remember, I keep saying the Bible is a subversive book. And sometimes subversion happens covertly, it happens cryptically, and it can even happen subliminally. And so sometimes the Scriptures will confront an evil head-on, right? A full frontal assault on evil. And then sometimes the Bible um, can, uh, at other times, it defeats things with a flanking maneuver. I'm using military lingo here. But so sometimes the Bible confronts something not head-on, but it kind of circles back around and flanks it, to, to use a metaphor. So keep that in mind as we discuss this today. I want you to see in these verses that the Bible actually lays the foundation to unravel the institution of slavery. Actually, within a few centuries... Um, after the New Testament was written, slavery had all but disappeared in the Roman Empire as Christianity grew as a religion. And so Paul does several things here. Um, he, he one of the things he does is um, to unravel slavery in the, in the ancient Mediterranean world. Is he gives servants a dignity and worth by telling them. That their servitude is not in vain. God counts it, he sees it, and he honors it. He's essentially adre- he's, going exa- he's going against exactly Aristotle's view of a slave. Aristotle, has, has, in the quote I read a minute ago, said that a slave was without deliberation and rational faculties. They couldn't even be reasoned with. And Paul does just the opposite. He he engages servants and slaves, and I'll get into the difference between the types of servants and slaves in the ancient world in a second. But he 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 addresses them, and by doing that, he essentially is he's you know um, indirectly letting everyone know that of course they have rational faculties and deliberation, and they're moral beings capable of developing a relationship. Not only with their master, but with Jesus. And look what he says in verse 22. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, some translations of the Bible will say, Servants obey in everything, some say, Slaves obey in everything. And the ESV, which is what, what we read this morning, says bondservants. And the translators who put the ESV version together really wrestled with that word, the Greek word doulos. And the reason they wrestled with that word and decided they would ultimately translate it as bondservants is because, unlike the modern conception we have of slavery, where someone is kidnapped and forced into servitude... In the ancient world, often people became servants or slaves willingly. And here's, I'll give you an example. Jacob is unable to give Laban, his uncle, a dowry for Rachel. And Laban says, work for me for seven years, and I'll give you my daughter. And we all know the story, right? What happens? Uh, Laban tricks him and gives him Leah. Poor Leah. And, uh... (laughs) He wasn't, she wasn't Jacob's first choice. And he has to work another seven years because he doesn't have the money. Now, you say, well, why didn't he just, when he realized that's what was happening, walk away from the situation? Well, he had become essentially a bond servant. He had become his uncle Laban's slave and committed himself for seven years. Ultimately, it was 14 years to ultimately get Rachel. But in the ancient world, that was common, it was common if you had no money, you had no property, you couldn't feed yourself to sell yourself into bondage to someone for a particular period of time to either pay off a debt or to be able to be fed and to be clothed. So, so the institution of slavery was a lot different than we think of it today. When we, when we think of slavery today, we think of the horrible atrocity of the Atlantic slave trade in Europe and here in America, which of course was abominable. Um, but in the ancient world, slavery and servanthood was much more nuanced, and, and so um, that's one reason why we shouldn't read into uh, the Bi- when the Bible talks about slavery with simply just a simplistic approach and think that we know what it's talking about. It's, it's very complex. But essentially, this is what's happening. He tells servants, which includes some who are slaves, some who are bond servants, and he says... Those in charge of you are only your earthly masters. Their power is limited. That's essentially what this passage is saying. Their their power is limited. But instead of causing you to rebel against them, Paul says, serve them all the more sincerely, knowing that it's not them you're serving, but Christ who is your real master. Now, here's where the application comes in. I don't want to jump to the application, but every one of us, most of us, work for someone else. And even if you have, even if you have your own business, there are people that you have to answer to, whether it's shareholders or partners. And so uh, you, you can always be resentful of the people you have to answer to. But ultimately, what Paul is saying is your real master is not the person that tells you what to do on your job. Your real master is Jesus Christ he 's the one that's really running everything in the world that 's what he 's saying here 's what 's amazing. <clears throat> Christianity grew in the Roman Empire from the ground up. The apostles didn 't have a coffee meetings with governors and emperors and talk about spreading you know the kingdom it didn 't work that way. Christianity actually uh, took root among the the, the people of low station, right? Slaves and servants and poor people. In fact, intellectuals in the ancient world criticized Christianity because they basically said, yeah, you know, no one important cares about it. Only, only you know, servants and slaves and poor folks, which happened to be like 95% of the empire. So God knew exactly what he was doing. The gospel of Jesus was resented by powerful people and aristocrats. But it was incredibly popular with Roman slaves. I'm going somewhere with this. Hopefully you're tracking with me. It was incredibly popular with Roman slaves and people in low position in society. I mean, after all, Jesus wasn't a respecter of persons. He was in the trenches. The Bible says he emptied himself of glory and took on the form of a servant. In Mark 10.45, it says, whoever would be first among you must become a slave of all. That's Mark 10.45. 10.44, and the very next verse says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Remember how I said that the Bible either covertly or subliminally or subversively reworks the worldly concepts of power. And essentially what Jesus is doing, what the New Testament does, and what the gospel does, is it says that the, the key to being exalted, the key to being lifted up, is actually to make yourself low. And so the idea of a slave or a servant becomes more than a metaphor. It actually becomes the vehicle that the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads into the empire. You know, God is great at grassroots movements. And that's exactly what Christianity kind of was. It was like this grassroots movement. And slaves are in the homes of important and powerful and rich people, all even to the point where in Caesar's own household, there are Christians who are working hard, who are, who are letting the light of Jesus Christ shine in them and telling their master or his wife about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact... In Philippians 4.22, Paul ends his letter, listen to this, saying, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And here's what he's saying, we're in. We're in. I mean, it's brilliant when you think about it. God doesn't tell slaves and servants, rebel against your masters. He says, no, serve them all the more, knowing Jesus is, your, is the master of even your master, faithfully, not as an eye pleaser just to look like you're working, you know, the boss is coming, look busy, but really from the heart. With a sincere heart, work with all your might as unto the Lord, because he is your master. And what happens is, There's these covert operatives all throughout the empire. Even in Caesar's household, uh, you know, you can imagine him in the daytime writing an order, a decree to persecute, you know, Christians in one region of the empire while at home his wife is being, you know, ministered to by by the household slave who's a Christian. And within a few short centuries, the empire had essentially become Christian. I mean, Constantine converts because his mom... Helena is a Christian. And so it bubbles up from the ground up and gets all the way up into the, the highest echelons of Roman culture and society this way. It's like a Trojan horse, you know? God, I mean, I can just imagine, you know, God talking with the angels, the angels saying, Why don't you, why don't you tell, you know, why don't why don't you, you know, why doesn't the Holy Spirit inspire the writers of the New Testament to say, you know, to break off your shackles and, and God, no, 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 I got a plan here. I've got I've got a brilliant plan, I've got a brilliant plan. We're, we're we're gonna we're gonna defeat them, but but they're not even gonna see it coming. I mean you know I mean I'm not saying God talked like that, but I'm just that's just an, that in my mind that's the way it it, it went down. You know the angels are like you know slavery is evil, and God said no 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 I got a plan. Trust me with this one. You know, and look what he says he says. Um, Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. They would share the gospel with their family members and through their hard work and diligence. Listen. The victory of the Son of God over pagan Rome did not come through rebellion and insurrection, but through faithfulness and servanthood. I'll repeat that. The victory of the Son of God over pagan, idolatrous Rome did not come through rebellion and insurrection, but through faithfulness and servanthood. So when you're thinking about, how can I make an impact in my calling and my vocation? Remember that. Remember that statement. When you're thinking, you know, I hate my job. I hate my boss. God calls us to faithfulness and servanthood Wherever we 're at in life, glorify God right where you are. God calls us to faithfulness and He calls us to service. and so I guess my question for you this morning is, where are you serving? How are you serving? Um, as far as as far as church goes um, If you feel the Lord tugging at your heart this morning to serve, I mean, you can approach me or Carol or one of the elders or Kevin. There are places for you to serve. As a side note, this is kind of why the consumeristic church model is kind of bankrupt because it says, what can the church do for me, me, me? And it doesn't include this idea of servanthood and servitude and glorifying God by serving. You know, you see a need, you fill it and and serve in that way. But God calls us to servanthood. And then, secondly, we see from verse 23 to verse 25 injustice and oppression doesn't have the last word. It says in verse 23 whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the inheritance as your reward, which is essentially a declaration to servants and slaves that, yeah, your master seems like the one with all the money or maybe you're the guy who owns your company, or whatever it is. But there is an inheritance for you, right? Because the idea is that a servant, he had no inheritance, right? He, he, the, 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 uh, his employer, his, his master didn't say, when you pass away, I'll give you, you know, five acres. They had nothing. And Paul is telling them that you have an inheritance with the Lord. There is a reward stored up for you with the Lord, right, in heaven. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. And he says this, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There's no partiality. So God is not just saying, just endure your oppression, you know, stoically with a stiff upper lip and, you know, grin and bear it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's comforting God's people by telling them, hey, and by the way, God does care about justice, he does. And the oppressor will answer to God one day. That's essentially what's being declared here, which is something that is, was probably you know, quite novel in the first century to hear. He says the wrongdoer, just so you know, the one that mistreats you and abuses you, he's going to have to answer. He'll be paid back, verse 25, for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality with God. God doesn't care about his position. God doesn't care about how important he is. God is no respecter of persons. Look at three things he says. He says, you may feel that, your life, uh, that you're working your life away for nothing, but you do have an inheritance. You'll be rewarded. Second, your boss is actually Jesus, not the person giving you orders. Your boss and your master is actually Jesus Christ. And third, even if you're mistreated... There will be justice because God sees all, and he's impartial. There are no backdoor dealings with God, you know, in this world. Powerful people, you know, can turn the blind eye to oppression, injustice, and things like that because someone behind the closed doors has has made a backdoor deal. There's no backdoor deals with God. He is the righteous judge who has stored up a day reserved and put aside a day in which he will judge all men and women. And finally also, Paul affirms that their calling is valuable. And I want to say this to you, your calling is valuable. Whatever it is you do, if you're an electrician, a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is you do, your calling is valuable because God has invested you with his spirit. And he's If he's called you to where you're at, it's to proclaim him. And that often happens not by cheating your employer by standing in the back room talking for an hour and a half when you should be working. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is working with all of your might and being different than the world, right? Because the world is trying to cheat the boss. You know, I've heard stories before of, you know, uh, Christians working in a factory in the and, 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 you know, the the guy running the factory finds out that, you know, that the, the hardest workers in his factory are the Christians and tells them, can you, can you bring more of your friends from your church because you guys are the best workers. That's, that's communicating the gospel. That's evangelism. And it's in the day-to-day kind of things that we think are mundane, that we think are kind of a drudgery, that God calls us to be faithful. You know, um, God, there's value in our vocation and in our callings. So whatever your job is, you can glorify the Lord in, if you do it with all your might. And this means that work is worship. It means that your work, your calling, your vocation, can be included in worship. You can worship God in how you work. You can worship God in your calling and and, and how you serve other people. God calls you to serve him and glorify him right where you are. And then lastly, lastly, the gospel, far from endorsing oppression of the powerless, calls the powerful to recognize the dignity of those under them. Chapter 4, verse 1 It says, "'Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, "'knowing that you also have a master in heaven.'" Remember, there's two sides to to every coin here. So it was, "'Wives, submit to your husbands, "'but husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them.'" "'Children, obey in everything, "'but parents, don't provoke and exasperate your children.'" "'Servants, work with all your might, "'knowing that there is a master in heaven.'" who is really the the master of your master. But masters, don't mistreat your servants, right? But treat them justly and fairly because one day you're going to answer to the boss of all bosses, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords. Another letter that was written during the time that Paul wrote the Colossians is a letter of Philemon. Now, Philemon is only one chapter, but it beautifully illustrates this point here. That the gospel is not just, so so it doesn't stop there. Servants serve, masters don't mistreat. If 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 you read the, the book of Philemon, in fact, go home today and read the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter. It's like 26 verses or something like that. And essentially, it's Paul writing to another Colossian brother. A man by the name of Philemon, who was wealthy, who had a slave, Onesimus, who ran away and possibly stole some of his master's money. And Paul meets up with Onesimus somewhere else. So Paul's never been to Colossae. He's never been to the church of Colossae, but he's in prison. He's kind of on house arrest, and he meets Onesimus, who converts and becomes a Christian. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon saying, Onesimus is your brother receive him back. He could have told Onesimus, you're on the run, man, go. But he says, go back to Philemon and be reconciled to him. And he writes Philemon, he says, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. This is your brother now. You thought he was useful to you as a slave, but now as your brother, he's really useful to you. And the book of Philemon is a beautiful illustration that the gospel is about reconciliation. And you could see how these verses, the book of Philemon and others, that as Christians started to embody this, the institution of, of ser, you know, servitude and, and slavery started to crumble, kind of from the inside. Because as you, as you have dignity and respect for others, right, because they're God's image bearers also, it's hard to lord your power over them, right? Remember Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, the Gentiles lord their authority over their servants, but, but, but you shouldn't act that way. Don't lord your power over others. The gospel turns the power structures of this world up on its head. And really, within a few centuries, the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire had kind of disintegrated. I mean, it really had gone away. It really, there were always you know, small little instances of it in the ancient world, but as an institution, it had pretty much disappeared as the empire became more and more Christianized. And so this is the gospel's power, its flanking you know, maneuver. Paul's declaration that slaves are really serving Jesus Christ, who is their real master, and that they'll receive a reward of inheritance for their faith and perseverance, and the warning to masters that they must treat their slaves with justice and fairness because they too have a master in heaven is the ultimate flanking maneuver. It is the ultimate philosophical ambush to the institution of slavery. It wasn't a, a head-on full frontal assault, but essentially the power of the gospel you know, penetrated and permeated all of the institutions of the ancient world. There may be a difference between male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, but in God's economy, they all have equal worth and dignity and value as His image bearers. And that's the point. Let's pray. Father, as we confront sophisticated arguments against the truth of Scripture, there are those who doubt and who have thought, long and hard, about Scripture's claims. And often those arguments are, are uh, some of the first line of defense for, for, for people who don't believe as to why they don't believe. They see in Scripture what they think is archaic, antiquated, and unjust systems but, Lord, we know that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the ministry of reconciliation between human beings and God and between human beings and each other. Now, we don't always faithfully live up to that ideal, but, Lord, help us to. Help us, O oh God, as we go out and share the gospel Lord, to see the lost come to know Jesus, that we would have an apologetic, that we would be able to give an account and an answer of some passages that are hard for our modern sensibilities to wrap our heads around. I pray, O God, that you would strengthen us in the confidence of your word that you are not unjust, but Lord, you see all things and that, Lord, you will one day judge all men. And you command us, O God, to embody the grace and love and reconciliation that Jesus did through serving others. Lord, we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.